Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. And welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. We are certainly wishing everybody well as we go through another week of the coronavirus in America. We hope that your loved ones, family, friends, everyone close to you is safe and healthy. And we certainly hope that you are doing your part in this fight to stop the spread of this disease because the sooner we can get through this thing and back to whatever version of normal our lives are, the better off we're all going to be. In these tough times, though, everyone needs a little support. Our sponsors need a little support from you guys. If you want to help out this podcast and you want to help veterans all over the country, go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Sponsors tab and check out all the sponsors that we have that make this podcast possible. And if you can, if you feel inclined, please support them. Purchase their products. Use our discount codes. Ask us, email us if you need them. We'll get them to you if you don't have them anymore. But certainly... Make sure you guys are patronizing the sponsors that help keep this podcast going, as well as Amazon.com. When you go through our website, HazardGround.com, and you click on the Amazon button uh, at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, we'll get a percentage of whatever you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to all the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube as well. Subscribe there. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes, for us, doesn't have to be a long review. Just let us know what you think, what you like, and what you don't like. We certainly appreciate the feedback. And then finally, again, you can always send emails to producer at hazardground.com, and we will get your guest suggestions and any sort of stories you'd like to see told on the Hazard Ground. Again, everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and let's beat this thing together. And before we get on to this week's episode, just a little prelude. Because of everything going on with the coronavirus, This week's episode was supposed to be an anniversary of sorts. Our guest is a non-military guest, and we have him on because of his association with the military and his connection to the Boston Marathon bombings. And that is the anniversary that we are approaching, which is why we released this episode this week. So just wanted to give you that background before we get started with the episode. So joining us this week is a non-military member who has a strong connection to the military through his rehab. He is a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing. In fact, he was the last person to be released from the hospital as one of the victims of the Boston Marathon bombings. He lost his right leg in the attack. He still fights to keep his left leg. He currently is doing motivational speaking. It is Mark Fucareal joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. All right. Uh, Again, we step outside the bounds of the military world to tell another really interesting and powerful story, which is yours. And uh, that day, obviously, still, you know, very fresh in everybody's minds. And and every year you guys get reminded of it uh, as the Boston Marathon is run. But, you know, before we get to what happened in 2013 to you, just kind of a little background about yourself. You know, how'd you grow up? Where did you grow up? You're a Boston native. I mean, give me a little bit kind of background uh, of your life. Yeah, I'm born and raised just outside the city of Boston in a little town called Stoneham. Um, Blue-collared family, worked hard. Mom worked a lot, dad worked a lot. Um, I had an older brother and then an older sister um, that don't like to admit to being older than me, but they are (laughs) older than me. 
they like to pretend they're younger, but they're not. Um, but yeah, I grew up, you know, a lot of cousins, uh, big family, Irish and Italian family, uh, typical stuff. Went to, you know, the elementary school, middle school and high school in the same town. Um, played a lot of sports, uh, soccer, been into football, football, hockey, track. Um, very, a lot of energy. They used to call me Sparky, like a spark plug. Cause I was always <laughs> running around. They called me Gumby on the soccer field because I'd run into everybody, hit the ground, get back up, keep running. Uh, never really stopped. Um, so, yeah, pretty much growing up right just outside the city of Boston. Um, senior year in high school, I was in a car accident. Uh, really damaged both my knees, took me out of my winter track season, took me out of my spring track, which then kind of – Scared me away from going to the college I was supposed to go to. I was going to go to uh, Bridgewater State College to play football and run track uh, with a buddy of mine, with my best friend growing up. He was going to play baseball there and football. He was a quarterback. I was a wide receiver. Um, and we were going there to play ball together. And again, that car accident really screwed up my knees and uh, turned me in a different direction in life. Uh, and I decided come that September when I was supposed to start college in 1997, I, uh, opted out not to go to school. Uh, I said, I'm not ready. Um, cause I wasn't going to be able to play sports. And I just choose a path of life of living and working and said, school will always be there for me to go back to, uh, I'm 41. Now I never went back. I learned more in life than I think school could have taught me. I got involved with a lot of music. Um, traveled quite a bit on my own little entertainment company for a while. And then I stopped that and it was branching off to setting up my own nonprofit organization um, in the early 2000s for music, for kids getting them off the street, providing free lessons, classes, recording studios. I was working with um, setting up a program in the Woburn Boys and Girls Club of America up here in a little city in Woburn. Um, and yeah, so I was, you know, that's what kind of helped me go towards helping people, leading towards helping people. Um, so, yeah, fast forward. I had a baby in 2007, which kind of put that on hold because my, at the time, fiance uh, got into nursing school. So we put her into nursing school full time and I worked full time. So the nonprofit I was working on establishing got put on the side burner for a little bit. Um, so my son was born, like I said, on September 19, 2007, the same day I was oh, wow. uh, born. Yeah, we, we share a birthday. And, uh, yeah, my 29th birthday he was born. That's awesome. So, you get to be the same age for the rest of your life. You never have to tell anybody yeah. how old you are. Uh, see, I, yeah. funny story, Mark. My twin sons, their, their C-section date was on my birthday, but... Little, little kids couldn't hold out. They, they came six days early, so they were born a week, uh, six days before. But I was so excited when I found out that the C-section date was going to be on my birthday. I'm like, I'll tell everybody I'm 35 for the rest of my life. I don't ever have to celebrate a birthday again. No one's going no to care. It's not my day anymore. No, exactly. It's not my day. And that's exactly, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. My, uh, my ex-wife, initially the doctor said that he was supposed to be born on uh, her birthday, September 10th. Ah, which this all this all plays into what happens on the marathon day, right? Um, so 
keep that in mind. September 10th, initially, was his, he was supposed to be born. His mother did not want to share her birthday with anybody. <laughs> she wants to celebrate her birthday. She wants her day. Uh, she's just that way. Um, so he ended up being born on my birthday, September 19th. Thank God. Um, because you fast forward to 2007, uh, 2013, April, um, my son was in preschool, an educational daycare that we have in this town right next to mine in Reading. Uh, instead of being in kindergarten at the South school in Stoneham, uh, he would have, um, been in class if he was born on September 10th, because the cutoff date, he would have been in kindergarten, which up here in Boston, Patriots Day, that Monday, April 15th, would have been a holiday. So he would have not had school. But because it was a daycare, educational daycare, preschool, they were open because they don't follow those rules. Um, I know exactly where you're going with this. He would have been with you. He would have been with me because his mother was an overnight nurse on the cardiac floor in Melrose Wayfield Hospital. So she was actually going to be sleeping during the day. So I would have had to bring him with me so she could sleep so she could go to work that night. She works the overnight shift. So because he was born nine days later on my birthday, he was not with me because he chose to go to his teddy bear picnic instead of coming to the marathon with me. And if, like I said, if he was born on her birthday, he wouldn't have had that choice. He would have went with me. Wow. So bringing it to that day, April 15th, um, only reason I went was a buddy of mine called me on Sunday, the day before the marathon, April 14th. And I just finished my real estate classes. So what we were doing, me and my now ex-wife, she went to nursing school. She got her degree. She started working. I was taking the real estate course to go work for her uncle who owns a big real estate company in our town while I was going to go back to school full time. So I was going to go into the nonprofit sector. Uh, and I was going to go to business management school for that. And, uh, but I needed to get my real estate license so I could show houses on the weekend, go to school Monday through Friday. Um, so on that Sunday, I actually finished my real estate courses, the classroom courses. Um, I had the test scheduled for Wednesday to get my real estate license in the state of Massachusetts. Um, So that Sunday I got home from class. My buddy called me who was supposed to be doing the class with me, but bailed. Um, So he goes, Hey, we're going to go to the marathon tomorrow. I said, listen, you know, every year I don't go, I don't like the marathon. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. He's like, no, no, listen to me. Mike J is running. I said, Mike J's running. I I thought he was down in, you know, North Carolina. Kent Lejeune. And he said, no, he retired. And, uh, he made it home in time and he got a bib and he's going to run the marathon. So he's a retired Marine now. And every time Mike J used to come back from deployment as often as we could, we would take him out. We actually drove to North Carolina and picked him up and drove to Myrtle beach, South Carolina and had a crazy, crazy weekend. It was supposed to be a long weekend and ended up a really short weekend. We've all been there before. <laughs> yeah, I think he got more hurt when he was with us partying than he ever did 
serving tours in Iraq right. and in Afghanistan. So you said he went to the hospital? Oh, he ended up in the hospital. Yeah, getting the Why? stitch back on. Ah, he's a Marine. Yeah, that's <laughs> all you had to say. Okay, got it. Noted. He ran, he, he, he ran through a double glass paint door. Oh, my at God. At our hotel. A slider door, balcony door. Unreal. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's a marine. <laughs> I'm sure he was fine the next day. Just not not bumps and bruises, Doc. Everything's good. Oh yeah, he was fine. We we filled out a fake police report for a car accident to get him back on base. <laughs> that is outstanding. We brought him back. His whole head was bandaged up pretty well. Oh God. Um. Yeah, it was it was a wild trip. Yeah, to say well, the least. Let we me ask a- you real quick. So you say you didn't like yeah. the marathon. Why didn't you like the marathon? Ah, I hate. I hate that type of crowd. It's like, like, it's it's really bizarre, man, that you say that. I um, I don't really like those events. They get me nervous. Uh, too many people in one place, too easy of a target. Always thought that way. Strongly believed that. Um, well, and, and that ever day, since nine eleven, that's kind of, but that is kind of the people quickly fall back into the world that you know everything is safe and secure in America, but. Uh, you know, a lot of us who have deployed are never like that. You know, I mean, it, whenever whenever I go into a place, a concert or whatever, everything else, you know, there's that's always in the back of my mind that there's a lot of people in a concentrated area, and this is a premium target for somebody who wants to do something stupid. So I, I, yeah, I understand I, what you're thinking from that standpoint. I've always thought that way, even pre like before nine eleven. Um, because again, I was in 1997 is when I started getting really involved in music and being at a lot of concerts. And then 98, 99, I started putting on my own live venues and shows, dealing with a lot of musicians and DJs and uh, then concerts. And then I started doing big concerts and nightclubs. Uh, And I've always thought that way. Um, So here we are walking on that day. So my buddy JP Norton called me and was like, hey, we're going to go. And I said, you know what, for Mike J, I'm going to go because he's running an honor soldiers he served with. And, um, my, my ex-wife, I grew up with her cousins and four of them were military. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all were the same age and they were friends with Mike J. They knew each other. So, uh, they served actually three of her cousins and one of my cousins served. So four, I had four very close family members and friends that served. And, uh, along with many other friends, you know, and uh, so I said, you know what? I'm going to go for my J. I'll go. And um, that's what we did. We went that morning. I woke up. I said, hey, I got a couple errands to run. What time do you want to head in? He said, whatever time you get here, just try to be here by noon. I said, all right, no problem. I did my errands. The day was weird. It was a strange day. April, sunny, beautiful, nice day. It was, it was weird walking out of like Citizens Bank that was in Stop and Shop making a deposit, I walked out and I just looked around and it was like, I was like, this is bizarre. This day just feels weird. Like a movie. Like it just, the whole scenery just looked fake. And uh, I happened to pick up a penny that day, which was pretty crazy at right outside that stop and shop. And, uh, and I said, yeah, this is good luck. So I went in and I bought uh scratch tickets. I went back in to buy scratch tickets. I said, no, that's a sign. I'm going to, Go buy scratch tickets, bought scratch tickets, drove over to my buddy JP, scratched the scratch tickets, and didn't win a penny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we made our drinks like everybody else does on Marathon Monday. We made a mixed beverage in a to-go Sprite bottle, and we headed into Boston. And uh, a buddy of uh, my friend JP's picked us up, Stephen B., Stevie B., we call him. 
and his girlfriend at the time. And another buddy of ours, Jared, came and jumped in the car with us. Um, so the five of us drove into Boston, and we parked in the parking garage on the wrong side of Boylston Street. So we had a truck and walk all the way up Boylston Street, cross over, and then come back down Boylston Street to meet in front of the Forum Restaurant because we're meeting my buddy JP's brother, Paul, and his girlfriend at the Forum Restaurant. So that's what we did. We made our way. But in the process of walking, the kid Stevie B says, this is unbelievable. He goes, I've never been here before. He's like, dude, this is great. Look at all these people. This is awesome. And I said, no, it's not. I go, this sucks. And he said, why would you say that? We were in front of the Heinz Convention Center. And I said to him, uh, I said, because look, man, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I go, if someone pulls out a gun here and just starts shooting, I said, well, you're dead. Like, you don't even have to aim it. You just got to pull the trigger and shoot. Mm-hmm. And he goes, holy shit. He goes, dude, I never thought about that. And I said, he says to me, I'll never let you forget that what you said to me after that, he said, when you said, look like that, a kid, the ba- two kids had backpacks. It wasn't them two. It wasn't the two kids that had back. Everybody had backpacks right, right. on at that sporting event. And I said, look, two kids happened just to cut in front of us with backpacks on. And uh, it wasn't the two bombers. And I said, all it takes is someone to have a bomb in a backpack like that. Dead words out of my mouth. Stephen B., Literally every time he shares that story, he says he just chills up his spine. I said, listen, I said, all it takes is that. I didn't say somebody has that. You know what I mean? Right, sure. And uh, and that guy wasn't, you know, did I really think that was going to happen? No, but it was that, is that always my fear and my thought? Yes. So what do they call that when you think something's going to happen? ESP. And then it does happen? No, it, it's like self-predicting, like... Like, if you always think, like, oh, I'm going to get in a car accident, I'm going to get in a car oh, accident. Oh, self-fulfilling prophecies? Yes. So that's kind of what I feel that it almost was to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there we go. We walk around. We get to the location. And now we set up camp. And uh, we all check in. We all give each other hugs. We're there. You know, we're hanging out for a couple minutes, not long. And uh, we set out. We all set our highs. And uh, then we got on our cell phones to check the location of our friend because you can check the location by the bib oh really and uh yeah by the bib number there's a tracker in it so you can see what mile marker he crosses so you can see how far away from the finish line he is and how much time you have to get to a location so it's a tracker so we found out he was still pretty far away because they run waves the marathon right. boston so big it takes so long they run the waves so he was in a later wave pool, started later. We were there early. We said, all right, hey, we got enough time. Why don't we just go and why don't we go grab a beer somewhere and grab a bite to eat? So we just started talking about where we wanted to go. And then that's where the first bomb went off. And we all looked down the street and seen it at the finish line. And it was big. It was loud. The smoke towered over the buildings. The, it was big cloud of gray. It was nuts. And uh, my buddy turns to me and, what do we do? He's like, what the hell was that? I said, I don't know, but it wasn't good, I'll tell you that. And uh, Now, wait, did, they, did, did your buddy say anything to you about, like, holy crap, Mark, you just said that, that you know, somebody could do that. They just did. Like, did it dawn on you that you had that sort of no. premonition? No, no. So that was, that was probably about 
an hour later after I said that. So initially, no one kind of knew what it was. They thought maybe a gas. Uh, I mean, in, in, in the city of Boston, it's so old. They do a manhole covers that explode, you know. Um, but I knew, I, I knew in my mind, in my heart, I knew that it, that was, that was something that wasn't, that wasn't a manhole cover or a gas line. That's this it's too much of a coincidence. You know what I mean? Right. To be that to, in my eyes, instantly I knew I'm like, shit, something's fucking going on. So um, were you thinking everybody, let's get the hell out of here now or. No, I, my, I, I really didn't move too far. I was parked next to the tree. And uh, I, I kind of we're just looking, and my buddy's like, "What do we do? Where do we go?" And I'm like, "I, I don't know." I'm like, "But those people are going to be hurt. There's people going to need help down there." And uh, another friend of ours had hopped the stale barrier and was out in the middle of the street, and he's yelling, "Get in the street! Get in the street! Get away from the buildings!" Because I think he thought it was a gas line, like a gas mm-hmm. explosion. So everybody. And right up, right the like seconds after he was yelling, get in the street, the second bomb went off. Let me ask right you a question real quick, Mark, before we get into the nitty gritty of this. Um, yeah. So when you are standing out there on the street, does anything seem out of place? Does anybody look suspicious? Are you even thinking that? I'm always thinking that. I mean, in the video and in the surveillance camera and pictures caught before the marathon, before the bombing, mm-hmm. I'm always looking over my shoulder. I didn't see anything that looked out of place. I didn't see nothing. The only thing was the backpack was against pretty much two, three feet at different times of the, he was, so he was behind me. The second bomber was next to me for four minutes and 37 seconds, mm-hmm. 27 seconds or something. The FBI guy said, really? And, uh, he actually bumped me. He actually bumped me three times because I got too close to the backpack. Because mm-hmm. I was using it. I used a tree as a defense. You know what I mean? I use that so no one can get in that spot. And I, you know, I just use it as a barricade to block people from bumping me because I hate when people bump me. <laughs> um, I, it just frustrates me. I get claustrophobic. But I kept getting. So he bumped me. He bumped me and he bumped me. So finally I turned around. I said, dude, back the fuck up. I said, back up. Back up. Don't bump me again. And, uh, I tapped my buddy, JP, standing next to me, and it's all on the video the FBI was showing. I tap and I point over I point over my shoulder. Like they zoom in on it. They they had some they had some pretty crazy stuff. Um and they're like, What did you say to him when they questioned me later on in the hospital? And I said, Who? What did I say to who? Like, what do you say to the bomber? I'm like, I didn't I don't know the bomber. And they're like, What did you say to that guy? I said, Oh, that guy? I go, I told him not to fucking bomb me. I told him to back up. <laughs> and so I, I, I I tapped my buddy and I said, Hey, this guy bumped me. I go, he fucking bumps me again. My buddy goes, knock him out. JP always up for a good fight. And, uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to knock him out. There's little kids around. We're at the marathon. I go, yeah, how well does that go over? I'm going to beat up, get in a fight at the marathon. And, uh, so, um, yeah, then like I said, does it unnerve you looking back on it, that you were standing next to the guy for so long and, and, you know, how do you put yeah. all, how do you reconcile all that? Cause it's like, obviously if you had known you would have done something, but you didn't know. And so it's like, you know, it's almost like that, that yeah, feeling you where you, you could have done, maybe done something to prevent it, but not really. Yeah. No, nah, there's no way you didn't know. You couldn't know. You can't, you know, the guy had a backpack, put it down on the ground next to the tree in front of him. Everybody was doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, he wasn't, 
he was 100% fit in. He was watching the race, pretending like he was watching the race, just like everybody else. I mean, the commotion, the noise. Uh, I mean, you got people running by you wearing tutus and costumes. I mean, you're paying attention to all the craziness, the, the, the amount of, you know, just people, people after people. I mean, it was just, you know, five to 10 people deep on the sidewalk. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you're trying to talk to your friends about what's going on. You're trying to track your buddy, trying to figure out where you want to go grab a bike to eat and drink. I mean, you're thinking it, but you're in the back of your head, you, you kind of know, you know what, it's probably not going to happen. But, you know, it still makes you nervous. But, nah, there's no way. He fit right in with everybody else. Do you remember seeing the backpack on the ground before it exploded? Nope. Okay. Not one bit. Didn't even recall it. Didn't even... Now, he walked right up behind us, and it was already slung over one shoulder, and he just swung it right down and put it right down right away. Uh, Did he like, walk so off immediately? See. He was Him and his brother, actually, there's, there's surveillance photos as they're coming down the street. They're actually behind us a little ways. So as soon as we pulled in, they pulled in right behind. He pulled in behind us, and his brother kept walking down to the finish line more so. And... uh so like I said, it was 13 seconds later, and in the video you can see he just we all snap our head left to look at the finish line, and he just snaps right and walks right away, like like he knew what was up. That's how they picked him. Pretty much picked up, pick up on that it was him that was the second bomber. Yeah, because those things, those bombs were were, were time loaded. Once they, they start the pressure cooker, it's on a timer set, so to speak. You can't just you know hit a button after it wasn't like detonated. So, you know, they had to know that they had to get out of there pretty – he had to get out of Dodge pretty quick. I, I think – I think there's where cell phone detonated, no? Was I, it already – I thought they were – I could be wrong. And somebody, you know, whoever's listening, please, uh, if we're wrong, let us know. I thought they were in, like, you know, those uh, – They were in pressure, pressure, pressure cookers. cookers. They, yeah. were in, they were in a pressure cooker, but I think they had – like a remote control detonation from like a RC car, and there was like gunpowder from fireworks. I know that you could be right. Like, yeah, I, I, I'll trust you. I, I think it was a cell phone activation detonation. So I think his brother set his off. He turned and walked, and he I think he had to call it in to hmm. create the spark. I think it was just in the that was just their packaging they used, not necessarily like set a pressure cooker, walk away, and wait for it to go bang. Gotcha. Okay. I think it was just. That was the. I think that was the device that just housed the stuff, and then they just had the the detonate through cell phone. I'm not 100 percent sure. My FBI guy would be able to answer that better, Tim. Um, but all right, well let's let's bring it back. So your buddy jumps over the barrier. He's in the street yelling, "Get in the street! Get in the street!" Okay, are you? And then within a split second, we didn't. You, I, I at that point, I don't. Could have been five seconds, or it could have been a half a second, and then the bomb went off. Um, and then next thing I remember is looking up at the sky and it's a big gray cloud of smoke in my, you know, your head ringing. You can't hear nothing, but you know, ringing and everything's gray. And then I was on fire at that time. Uh, a cop ran over and uh, the first cop on scene, he actually just put his gloves on cause he moved to our side of the road in uh, there was shade. So oh, he was on the other side. He moved from our side to the other side and went and put his gloves on because it was colder in the shade. And uh, he ran over, and luckily he had his gloves on because he patted me out first because my right leg was blown off through the knee at that point. My pants were blown off my body. Half of my left leg was all shredded 
to pieces. And uh, I would just had Daisy Duke shorts on that were on fire still. My back of my jacket was on fire. So he patted me out. And then he went on to the little boy to try to help the little boy uh, that was next to me. And then another guy put me out on fire by pouring a bear on me uh, in a panic. Watch the video from the FBI. And then a third guy, I lit back up on fire again, and he patted me out with a, like a shoe he found or a flip-flop he found on the ground or something. Looked like a shoe. And uh, he like patted, and then he just dropped it, and he screwed and ran. Um, but I was in and out of consciousness. And uh, the nurse that ended up saving my life, Kayla Quinn, uh, she actually stepped over me. She thought I was dead because I was unconscious. And she tried to help the foreign exchange student, Lindsay Liu, who passed away. Uh, but she couldn't get in there to help her because there were so many people trying to help her. Um, so at that point, I actually regained consciousness, sat back up. And that's when she turned and saw me and she started assisting me and keeping me down, keeping my heart below the wound, uh, putting a tourniquet on me um, and then talking to me. And uh, OK, so yeah, let, me, let was, me ask you, where are your friends at this point? Do you know? No idea where any of my friends are at that point. Um, no idea. I just kept trying to get up and she kept pushing me down. And, uh, you know, we just started talking and I just said, listen, I want, you know. So then I lose consciousness, come back and be like, what happened? What happened? She said, you were hurt. There was a bomb. You've been hurt. And I said, listen, I don't want to die. I just want to get home to my son. They're like, who's your son? How old is he? And they just trying to keep me awake. Uh, so now there was other people that came over to start helping. Um, but I didn't know, but my two friends, JP and Paul, that were there with me, the two brothers, they also were blown up and both lost their legs. Okay. Theirs weren't a hundred percent amputated at, at the scene. Mine was JP's foot was pretty much a hundred percent gone. It was probably 90% gone. Um, so they were right behind me. Well, to my right, Paul was behind me to my right. JP was in front of me to my right. And I was on the left of them too. So yeah, all three of us were there blown up pretty good. Paul's girlfriend had gotten over the gate. They don't remember, but it was either Paul and JP were pushing her over and they, and she got over. So I was at the second bomb also with the little boy, Martin Richard, the eight year old that passed away. Right. And his six year old sister, Jane, who lost her leg. The mother was severely injured. Um, and then there was, I think, there was like five, six, I think there was like six amputees, just seven amputees. At, wait, no, so it was the three of us. So I think there was seven or eight out of the 17 amputees were at our, our bombing. Gotcha. Two passed away. Two passed away at the second bomb that I was at. The, the foreign exchange student. And then the little boy. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was hectic. People were screaming. We need tourniquets. We need more tourniquets. We need, you know, and, uh, it was, it was a hectic scene and it was loud and screaming and yelling. Uh, it was pretty wild to say the least during that day. And then do you, do while you, I'm laying, well, let me ask you while you're laying there, are you doing any assessment of what's wrong with you? Can you figure out initially? Like, do you know yeah, how bad it right is? Away. Yeah, I knew. I I I kind of knew and I kind of didn't know. It was I knew I couldn't get up and uh I knew it was bad because I was on my back. 
You know what I mean? That's right. that's how I knew I knew it was bad. I mean, initially when I first when the bomb went off and I first came around that I can remember the first thing I said was, Oh fuck, they got me. Um, because I knew what the first bomb looked like. And then I knew that I was in a blast similar to the one that just happened because I could see the same gray smoke. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I just knew if I'm on my back, the same thing just happened. There's only one reason I'm on my back, you know, it's the same thing that just happened further down the road just happened right where I was standing. And, uh, so when I'm laying there and they're trying to keep me out, you know, they put me on a bad stretcher and, uh, they said, Mark, this is going to hurt, but we need to move you because there might be another bomb. And they slid me out into the street on the backboard. And, uh, the guy's like, hold on, hold on. He's like, stay awake. He's like, I'm going to get an ambulance. And he's yelling, stop, 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 stop. And, uh, he's like, why, the, why didn't they stop? And some, someone else I could hear say, they're full, they're full. There's no room. So, uh, he said, Mark, I'm sorry. He's like, hold on. He's like, here comes another one. I'll get this one. And he's yelling, he's waving it down. And again, they didn't stop. And he's like, why didn't they stop? And the guys, they're full. And the guys yelling, I can hear him yelling at him. So, um, so they got on the radio and, uh, the guy said, we need an ambulance. We have two critical blah, 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 blah. And they said six. He's like, nope, not sending anymore. He's like, how long? In 16 minutes, the guy said, 16 minutes? They're not going to make 16 minutes. And uh, I was like, oh, shit, are they talking about me? Who are they talking about? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I knew there was other people. I knew there was other people around. And uh, so he uh, he said, Mark, I'm not going to tell you unless I know for sure you're going to have an ambulance. I'm not going to say that again. I'm sorry. Uh, and then um, I heard a voice say, I can put him in my, I can put him in my paddy wagon. And he goes, how many can you fit? And he goes, I don't know, maybe two. And he goes, him and her. And then I got lifted up. So I knew then that I was one of the two that didn't, that wasn't because he goes, he's not going to make, he's not going to make 16 minutes. That's what he said. And I said, well, when he said, I can take two and he said, take him and take her. And when I got lifted, I'm like, Oh shit! I'm the him. I'm the him that's not going to make 16 minutes. <laughs> what's that yeah, feeling like? I mean, like what's what's going through your mind right after that? Oh, I just was kept saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I want to see my boy. And uh, and then we got to the uh, so they put us in the paddy wagon, and this cop drove, and I was awake, my head slamming around in the back of this paddy wagon. It's not meant to transport people, you know. Right. Uh, it was me and Roseanne Sedoya, another amputee. And then two firefighters, um, in the paddy wagon, hold, trying to hold us on the bench while we're on backboards, you know, it doesn't work out too well. Are you in um, pain at this point? What's that? Are you in pain? No. Can you feel anything? Can't feel nothing. I didn't scream, cry, yell. Once. Boy, adrenaline's a bitch, isn't me. it? Like adrenaline's something. <laughs> That's unreal. It's wild. Yeah. They said like, I was just not yelling, screaming, crying, nothing, not one minute. You know, it's funny, uh, it's pretty it, wild. We, we talk about this a lot on the podcast with military guys, you know, in combat, and, you know, when they get shot, some guys, you know, they don't scream, other guys, they feel the pain, and they scream, and it hurts. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not fun, and uh, it's just interesting, that juxtaposition as to some people who feel every single thing versus people who feel nothing, you know? I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones, because my buddy JP and, and Paul, they both remember the pain. They could feel it. 
Um, but like I said, my my leg was 100% amputated at the moment. And you know what I mean? And, and I think a lot of it had to do with my brain was so rattled. My concussion was so bad. Uh, I was just seeing gray and like Heron was like, everybody's voice sounded the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even like women's voice sounded like men to me, you know, it was weird. It was like everything. It was really, really hard to hear because my eardrums were blown out of my head. Sure. At, at any point in time, are so, you, are you patting yourself down to feel like everything or no? Well, when the nurse actually was tending to me and putting a tourniquet on me, she goes, Oh shit, he's still on fire. <laughs> and, uh, we got to get his pants off. We got to get his pants off. I need scissors. And I go, oh, fuck, I got a belt on. They're never going to get the belt off. So I touched, I grabbed the belt, and I undid the belt, and I burnt my hand. I have a, I have a skin graft on my hand from the belt buckle. Wow, um, really? Yeah, the, yeah, the, my whole, yeah, my whole hand, the fingertips from undoing the belt got burnt. The belt buckle was so, it burnt my groin, too, the belt buckle and everything, the zipper. Yeah, because uh, it's the flash and the fire and the heat was so hot. Anything metal on you heated up heavy and burnt into you. Um, so, yeah, so I, I undid my own bit, my own belt. Uh, it was actually weird because I was two months later, I was in the hospital in the rehab and, uh, over two months, like two and a half months later, my family says there's a nurse that says she saved your life on the side of the street and she's just coming forth. Now we don't understand why she waited so long. Cause she's claimed that she's a nurse at mass general too. And she said she was at the marathon and she saved your life. She recognized you through pictures when like through, you know, your family being talked to and interviewed on, on online. But you got to remember there was a lot of weirdos claiming a lot of shit at the marathon, Mm -hmm. you know? So they go, Mark, we don't know if this lady's true or she's just a liar and she's crazy. And I said, you know what? I said, I'll meet her. Cause I, if she is the one that saved my life, I'd hate to not, you know? So she mm-hmm. came and the first, and the first thing she said to me, and I had never told anybody that part of the story that she said, Oh shit, he's still on fire. She came up to me and she said, first thing she goes, I just want to start off by apologizing because I added panic to a situation and being a nurse, I should have known better. She was panicking and she was like, he's on fire. He's on fire. She's like, I shouldn't have been, you know, you were, it made you more nervous. Like you freaked out. Like, and that's why I got my belt undone. And she goes, I just want to apologize for panicking you. You know? And I said, I knew this girl was the real thing. Months later, a friggin' news reporter has pictures of her working on me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I have those pictures. Uh, so then that's, I definitely knew she was real. I knew she was real from the minute she told me to apologize about saying that I was on fire and panicked me. Um, so yeah, we, uh, so laying on the street, we get into the end, we get into the paddy wagon, mm-hmm. and the paddy wagon drives us, drives us over to the hospital. And right while we're backing in my ex wife at the time, fiance, son's mother calls my cell phone and I hand it to the firefighter that's in the truck with me. Cause we're just backing in like literally beep, beep, beep. It's backing into the loading dock. And he's like, listen, ma'am, you got to get to mass general. Mark's been hurt. I got to go. He's like, she, and she said, okay, Bim, which was another friend of mine that was there. Jim James Costello. She said, all right, Bim, put Mark on the phone. Stop joking around. It's not funny. And he said, ma'am, I'm not joking. You need to get to mass general. I have to hang up. Gotta go. Bye. Hung up the phone, put it on my chest and said, don't answer that phone again. 
then the doors opened. And that was the last thing I remember was the doors opening. Um, I guess the cop, one of the cops that were there when it opened and people, they just, as soon as the doors opened, they just started puking. Uh, from what I heard, they, from what their stories were, uh, just from the smell of the burnt flesh and the yeah, blood, yeah. I guess it looked like, it looked like a, like a slaughterhouse inside this little back, back of this truck. And, uh, so yeah, we, I got into mass general and they pretty much, they saved my life. I should have been dead. So, okay. Um, so then I did 45 days there and 55 days in Spalding rehab. And then I did a year down at Walter Reed Medical Facility after that. All right, we'll, we'll get to that. Let me ask you, um, that's the last thing you remember. When you first wake up, what do you remember? I remember waking up, my family being over my bed. I mean, I was in ICU. I was in a coma. For how I was long? In surgery, like, uh, medically, I think I was medically induced for, I want to say, two and a half days. I want to say at least two and a half days. It was it was bad. I was I was surgery every day, uh, and every other day or something. I made the New England Journal of Medicine sixteen page article about how many different doctors worked on me at once and stuff. I got strap metal in my heart. I got that went up through the artery, through the amputation. A piece of metal took a ride to the blood through the vein, through the artery, and lodged in my right atrium. Wow! So how is have, that so possible? I have, they have no idea. I have to get an ultrasound to monitor it to make sure it doesn't get released because it'll go in and come out and they're afraid it might puncture my lung. They, so have you they, seen they a picture? Have you seen a picture of the shrapnel in your heart? Like, have they showed you? Yeah, I, I, I get to watch the EK like when they do the ultrasound. It's oh. like, oh, it's right there. There it is. Yeah, like, yeah, I get to look at it when they're doing it, you know? That doesn't freak you uh, out. Nah, nah, the body's pretty good. It would have been something already. Life's too short to worry about that. <laughs> That's a hell of an outlook, Mark, considering it's in your heart. But uh, I, I yeah, certainly appreciate the lightheartedness with which you approach it. It's small. It's it's a tiny little piece. They were they wanted to go in and take it out, and the doctor was like, "Absolutely not. You're not going to go in and take that out. You'll do more damage." You know. So like, let the heart, let the bo- let the body encapsulate it, and hopefully it won't push it out and eject it. You know. Right. Um, I got BBs, strap metal throughout my whole body. I got nails, roofing nails in my pelvis and my arm by, by my, you know, I got BBs throughout everywhere. Does, um, does that hurt? Like saying it makes me, it makes yeah. it hurt. Yeah, I, I got, I really don't, I have other pains that hurt more that probably focus on that than anything like that. It's, it's weird. It's, yeah, it doesn't, I don't really feel any of the metal. You know, so I mean, I can feel it if I rub my thigh or if I rub my butt cheek, you know, like the doctor said, he goes, oh, you were so close to it. He's like, you took such a blunt of the blast. You also took majority of the debris. He goes, you probably saved somebody's life. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it took, filled up my lower, my whole lower body's insane. Um, so when is the first time you speak to your friends who are also injured? Oh, that was that was probably over a month. Okay, over right. a month, right. maybe maybe a month, two months. Might have been two months later. Um, yeah, but I woke up. My family was there. You know, it was. I could tell by the look on their face, it was bad. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, you know, was wondering about my second leg. I knew my right leg was gone. I didn't care. I was worried about my second leg. Um, 
the pain was so bad in that they couldn't even, they gave me enough medication. It was like flatlining me. Um, it was like stopping my breathing because I, I, they couldn't give me enough pain medication to stop the pain. So they ended up doing an epidural and numbing the whole lower part of my body. And they left that in there for weeks oh, as really? long as they could. And then they had to take it out and then they waited to do more surgery and they put another one back in. Yeah. Uh, it was bad. Um, but that was a lifesaver, that epidural. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, that was amazing. That literally saved my life. I don't think I would have made, I they, they couldn't, like I said, they couldn't give me enough pain medication to stop the pain. They were literally killing me. They'll give me so much pain medicine, you know? Okay. Uh, um, overdosing. So when you, you said you were in the hospital there for, uh, two weeks and then you go down to Walter Reed, right? No, I was in mass general. I was in ICU for over, I think three, four weeks. Okay. Um, and then, so I was a total of 45 days in, in mass general. Cause then they moved me to the burn unit, the burn floor for all my burns and all my skin grafts. Okay. After I was in ICU, uh, which they released me. They said they weren't going to release me with any open wounds. They released me with three wound vacs. They kind of pushed us out the door. Um, they wanted everybody to know that all the marathon bombing survivors are out of the hospital. They're all doing great. That's what the news was reporting. Right. And that's what the city was reporting, which wasn't even remotely close to being true. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of us, not only me, were still not doing well at all. Um, then they moved me to Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Charlestown. I was there and I was going back and forth for day surgeries for weeks because they didn't want to give up my bed because they weren't even going to hold a bed for me. <laughs> Imagine wow. how screwed up that is. Yeah. 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 They go, no, like, so I had to go, I had to get driven over there, have surgery and then driven back like crazy. Right. And I had three open wound vacs. Um, cause my leg kept getting infected and infected. So they kept cutting my leg off shorter and shorter, uh, opened me back up. And, uh, so I was in Spalding rehab for 55 days. I still wasn't even weight bearing on my left leg when they sent me home. <laughs> Couldn't even weight bear. You, you send me out of like, how am I in rehab when I can't eat? I mean, I guess I can do upper body rehabilitation. I right. get it. Yes. You sent me home with no weight bearing on my left leg because of an additional surgery. Like I shouldn't even have been yet in rehab. Never mind. I could have been doing rehab at the hospital for upper body stuff, but still getting my lower legs taken care of. But again, it was all the plea of making everybody seem it's all kosher. It's good. It's lucky. You know, everybody's doing great. Does that bother um, you? You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It bugs me big time. Cause they just, they're, but you know, I, I think they're just frauds. It's, it's our government policy. It's the, it's the, you know, the Boston Marathon, the BAA is so powerful. Uh, it's just like, they don't even call us survivors. They call us one fund recipients. Like we're like, like we won an award, like that we're like, luck, you know, like lucky. Like uh, they don't want to be associated with us. Uh, it's it's pretty wild. It's pretty, pretty embarrassing. And, you know, but they're so powerful, the BAA, they're like a cult and a half. Uh, and I've been told that by other running organizations that fear them. Um, it's crazy when the mayor and the governor can't even get certain extra tickets and seats in the bleachers near the finish line or extra bibs for nonprofit organizations. Uh, they think they're such an elite status, that BAA. 
it's it's pretty sad and it's pretty sad what they did to our veterans that I fought for with me and my buddy Patrick Downs. Uh, we fought for Team Achilles, the Freedom Team, to uh, expand on the hand cycles and wounded veterans part of the marathon. It was pretty embarrassing, and I'll get into that in a minute. But um, yeah, they were rushing us out, rushing us in. I got rushed out of, you know, I got pushed out of Spalding for 55 days later. Um, still had other little bumps and hiccups for the remainder of the year, back and forth to the hospital for the rest of 2013, 2014. I did a lot of second opinions, try to locate a lot of other doctors traveled all over Boston, Miami, uh, New York, looking for doctors to, uh, re refix and try to lessen the pain in my left leg or to see if they could do something about even amputating it or if they could do something better to fix it with stem cell or any kind of research, anything to help me with my left leg. And uh, I spent a year trying to do that. And then that's when I met, well, Patrick and Jessica Downs were friends of mine due to the bombing. They lost their leg. Right. And uh, Jessica actually was in the same situation as me. She was fighting to keep her other leg. Well, she got into Walter Reed through political avenues, uh, through like politicians that her and her husband were friends with. Plus her dad actually worked there. He was a, I think I want to say a psychologist, Herm, her dad. So with his connections to Walter Reed, her sister did an internship there. Um, they were very politically connected. And then the politicians in Boston, I think helped with getting her into Walter Reed to try to keep her other leg. Um, she kept fighting my battle for me down there, her and her husband, about we were bouncing off ideas. She was like, my doctor's going to try this. You should try to talk to a doctor to try that. I said, hey, I found this brace. You should try this brace. She was like, hey, I found this brace. You should go try it. And we did. We did that, me and her and her husband. We did a lot of that together. And they just kept pushing and telling my story and telling my story down at Walter Reed about how I should be there. and. um I went skiing in 2014, um, in December of 2014 with Disabled Sports USA, and they bring out a section of the military veterans from Walter Reed. And um, they also get to bring a couple of physical therapists and occupational therapists. Mm -hmm. Well, Jessica and Patrick's occupational therapists and, and physical therapists came out for the trip to be there for the guys to make sure if they need any prosthetic assistance, help, leg or wound care. Um, so they introduced me, Jessica and Patrick introduced me to their occupational and their physical therapists. And they said, Mark, show me a leg. And uh, so I took off my prosthetic and I showed them my sock, my, my stump. That was a disaster. And she, and the girls literally like almost cried. Like they were like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no, this is what it is. And they're like, this is, I'm sorry, but this is horrible. Like, this is like cruelty. Like, this is like abuse. Like, you should not be like this. And uh, they took pictures of it. And they said, can I take pictures and show our doctors at Walter Reed? I said, yeah, of course. I'd love that. So anyways, months later, I got a phone call. You got to come down to Walter Reed. I said, okay, I'll be down there. So they said, well, you got to get all your medical records. Work with this doctor in Boston. He's going to get all your medical records, confine them, cut them down. And then we're going to review them and you're going to come down and visit Walter Reed. Well, they did. And they said, well, all right, well, on our part, we're going to write letters to our higher authorities and we're going to, you know, the, the, 
at that point, things had slowed down in 2015 uh, where they had availability and they actually had scheduled surgery times open and rooms open at Walter Reed. And um, so they said, you know, we're not doing this, as many surgeries every day as we used to be. So to keep our skills sharp, we'd like to practice on this guy, Mark, from the marathon bombing because he has similar wounds that we'd be looking at if any of our guys come back from IEDs. So to keep our skills sharp, we'd like to offer him his our services and we can bill his insurance company. And the doctors presented that to their higher authorities and they approved it. So off to Walter Reed and you go. Off, and they said, they go, the day we say you have to come, you got to come. And then you have to obligate, you're going to have to be here a year for recovery and physical therapy. You have to agree to that. So I did. I agreed to it. They called me in April and I was there at the end of April having surgery. And then I lived there for a year. I left my son and my wife back in Boston. And I went down to Walter Reed and lived in on, on base and did a year. I mean, I came home as much as I could. I flew home. I drove home pretty much every weekend to be there with my boy. Uh, and while I was down there, the ex-wife filed for divorce oh. after being married one year. That sucks. So, yeah, I moved three times. So within three years, I got blown up, moved three times, and because I couldn't go back to my house, I had to move to a handicap-accessible apartment because the house wasn't able to be converted to handicap-accessible because it was sure. a two two-story, and it was a small house, and the room sizes and the structure of the house was an old house in Boston. So, yeah, moved. I moved uh, three times. And a divorce and got blown up by a bomb and lost a leg and a half. <laughs> so, well, and then I built an addition on the house I bought all at the same time. Hey, everyone, just a quick break from the pod to tell you about my front page story. Looking for that perfect Mother's Day gift or really for anybody in your life, especially parents or grandparents whom you can't go to visit these days? Check out myfrontpagestory.com. You'll talk to a professional writer about your mom, your wife, grandmother, whomever it is for 10 to 15 minutes, and they will write the most incredible story about her or that person. There's something really amazing about saying to somebody, I wanted to do something special and unique for you, so I had a story written all about you. My front page story makes it look like an actual front page on a local newspaper framed and represents a lifetime keepsake that you'll put up in your house immediately. It's incredibly emotional for them because they get to read the quotes from you in print that say things like, I can never thank you enough. I wouldn't be who I am today without you. You are the most important person in my life. It just seems to hit different when they read it in that form. The bottom line is, she'll cry happy tears and you'll win. So go to MyFrontPageStory.com and put in the code HazardGround20. That's MyFrontPageStory.com and the code HazardGround20, capital H, capital G, Hazard Ground 20 to receive 20% off of whatever story you buy. Again, my front page story, it's an amazing gift that your loved one will truly cherish for the rest of their lives. Now back to the Hazard Ground podcast. Mark, let me ask you, uh, you said that when you woke up in your hospital, your family was there. When do you first see your son? Was he there at that same time when you woke up? No, uh, it was about two weeks, a little over two weeks later, I think it was he was able to come in and see me. Did you not want him to see you as soon as you woke up or did you not want him to see you in that condition? No, 
Yeah, I didn't want him to see me like that. I was bad. My body, my I was burnt completely. Like I was like, you, know, you ever see a burnt marshmallow? Mm-hmm. That was me. My face. What my did skin, What did his mother tell him? Yeah. I mean, was he asking about you? Did did, did how does he? How, what is he? What did he understand at the time about what happened to his dad? Um, which was crazy was people. Um, people would, people let their kids watch it and their kids knew <laughs> at five, you know, they're in preschool telling my son what might happen to, you know, your dad. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Um, he, he knew I was hurt and I was, you know, in the hospital and you know, whatever, but that was all he kind of knew. Uh, and then he came in and he saw me. Um, yeah, I didn't want him to see me, you know, like that. I was bad. I was in really bad shape. When you first saw him, what were you feeling? Oh, it was crazy. You know, he jumped up in my arms, you know. It was it was pretty wild. I mean, you got to remember, my, my ex-wife was an overnight nurse. And uh, so I pretty much would drive him to preschool, pick him up from preschool after work. And then, you know, I'd feed him dinner and put him to bed because she was working the night shift, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was it was me and him seven days a week, 24 hours a day, seven days, you know, seven every day. It was me and him, me and him, me and him for, for years. Cause even when she was in nursing school, she'd be at school and she had homework and she had study groups cause she had to study nursing programs are difficult, you know, a uh, very intense process with that school, very demanding. Um, so it was me and him a lot, you know? So when I all of a sudden didn't show up one day, it was pretty crazy for him and, you know, definitely not easy. All right, so you go through so, all this rehab. Um, are you better because of Walter Reed? Do you imagine what your life would have been like if you had never ended up there? Oh, yeah, day and night difference. Clear as day, like day and night difference. Uh, I was installed in rehab, and, you know, they're they're an educational rehabilitation. I mean, they got great facilities. They got great equipment. Uh, they got great PT and physical therapists. But they, they, they don't like, you know, certain ones they pay, certain ones they don't like to pay. They get the new ones out of school, and then they they, they all move on from there because they don't pay, uh, as well as some of these other places. So um, it's always a learning curve. I had great, at smart as a whip, physical therapist and occupational therapist at, at Spalding. But they were a pushover. One of them was a pushover for me, you know, the newbie. Um, she was an amazing kid. She was just, that's what she was. She was an amazing kid. She had a big heart, very smart, but I could give her any excuse and she'd bite on it and feel bad for me, <laughs> you know, which in the long run doesn't do me no justice. You know what I mean? Sure. And I wasn't looking at it like that until I got to Walter Reed. I met Kelly. Kelly was like the Nazi. They called her physical therapy, Nazi PT Nazi. She was, I came in, I was like, oh, I don't feel good. My back hurts. She goes, I don't give a shit. She's like, that's not going to change anything you're doing today. And she put me in my place quick. She goes, Mark, I got Green Beret. I got Army Rangers. I got Navy SEALs in here trying to pull that shit on me. She's like, it doesn't work. And she put me through physical therapy like it was a boot camp. But because of her, I became stronger, better, and I was able to do everything I was able to do building my own house, building retaining walls, digging foundations, jumping in and out of holes, climbing hills. I mean, so yeah, I mean, day and night difference. She actually runs, she's a big part of Travis Mills 
foundation now up at in Maine, up in rural Maine, the Travis Mills Foundation. Uh, Travis Mills is a quadruple amputee. No, yeah, I'm familiar with who he is. Um, let me ask you about when you think back to April 13th, uh, April 15th, rather, 2013, and everything that you've been through, um, what's the first feeling that comes to mind? Are you angry? Are you upset? I mean, blessed? What do you think of? Oh, 100% blessed. I'm on borrowed time, um, number one. Number two, I mean, the support. The support from complete strangers will change your life and change your outlook on anything. Um, that was half of my battle. I mean, my son and my family was like a biggest, like that was the biggest driving force behind me. But the second biggest driving force behind me getting better and doing stuff in life was support from complete strangers. You know what I mean? You, you mean uh, the doctors and the, and, the, and the nurses and everybody? Oh yeah. They were, they were a huge, I mean, they're that, that to me, they were given, you know, they saved my life to dedicate, you know. Well, who are the but, strangers you're referring to then? Oh, the $60 million that was raised by the One Fund. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, the gifts that people sent me in my hospital, the cards, the letters, um, you know, the, the messages on social media from complete strangers of people that didn't even know you donating, like, their last 10 bucks to you, you know? Um, the financial support from complete strangers all over the world. I mean, the good in this world definitely outweighs the bad, no matter what everybody says, because all we see is the bad. But in my eyes, all I see is the good because of the organizations I work with. You know, how I met Scott was working with, you know, was working with organizations with my buddy TK and doing those fundraisers and events to raise money and bring awareness, you know, that I do with other military organizations and stuff um so the biggest thing like i said is the support is what comes to mind through everything i everything i've been with all it's been has been nothing but support would you go and that's the only reason from my family to everybody family doctors and strangers they just support you 100 percent is what pushes you to keep going every day have you gone back to the marathon since would you oh yeah i went back couple of years later when I was healthy enough to go, I was a lot of times I was in surgeries around that time. And, uh, I went, uh, I think it was 2013. Actually, I went no, 2014. I went after the race was ran. We were at the the Red Sox thing. And we walked down with the parade after the parade went through for the Red Sox. I mm -hmm. went down. Um, and so, I actually have done the Boston Marathon twice now on a hand cycle. Oh, really? Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I did it in 2016 and 2017 when I was healthy enough to do it. And uh, I did it with a team called the Freedom Team, made up of all wounded veterans. That's awesome. Uh, for, for Team Achilles. Yeah, I've actually done eight marathons with them. I've done the, uh, the, I did the half marathon five times in Disney with them. Incredible stuff. That's it's great to hear. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, they're they're a great group of guys. Actually, you actually interviewed one of them. Oh, really? Which one? Uh, Zach. Um, uh, Zach Stinson. Yeah, Stinson. Yeah, that's that's Zach. Yep, I've done marathons with him. See, that's the Achilles Freedom Team. Actually, picture he's on there. He's unbelievable. What a, what a nice guy he is, too. 
Um, That's awesome. That's great. So, um, what's your quality of life like right now? It's touch and go. You know, it it is what it is. I mean, last night, forty one years old, out to two thirty in the morning, trying to run a snowblower up a hill. <laughs> you know, with, with with eight inches of wet snow. You know, <laughs> uh, and then there's days I can't get out of bed. You know, uh, just physical pain on my. I wear a special custom brace on my left leg to weight bear. I can't weight bear on my left leg for any length of time without a brace. Um, you know, and then it's constant switching and touch and go with the leg fitting in the socket, elevation, temperature, food, diet, all that changes size and shape of your leg. And then you can't get in your leg. Then it takes two weeks to make a test socket, two weeks to get a socket. So now you're four weeks out. That's if it all fits. And sometimes within that two weeks of waiting, your leg can change shape again by diet and weather. Um, yeah, so this, I mean, it's, it's just always, it's, it's going to ever for be a constant battle, you know, mm-hmm. especially with the pain, you know, um, let me ask but, you, you know, it's always could be worse. <laughs> no, listen, you're right. And we, we've said that a lot here on the podcast. Let me ask you about uh, sort of closure on this thing as the second bomber who uh, survived and obviously was arrested and uh, went on trial. Uh, what were your thoughts on how all that went down? Did you want to be part of the trial? Did you want to give a witness impact statement, any of that? I mean, give me kind of your role in that and your feelings on it. Yeah, he was the one that got me. So I did during the during the um, during the death penalty conviction. Um, I testified. I didn't do a victim impact statement because I was at Walter Reed going through surgery during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I was able to fly home to testify in the death penalty process. Uh, and it's funny because I went to the court and there were people protesting that he was innocent. They were yelling at us when I was walking in. What? You know, they were saying how it was fake. Hey, man, this country's sick. There's some sick people in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. They had nothing better to do. They they just all need to be put in a, you know, they just need to be put on a firing, you know, firing line, to be honest. But uh, they, uh, you know, it, it, he's a scumbag. He's actually December 12th. He's back in court um, appealing his, his, his death penalty. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was kind of a little disgusting. The state of Massachusetts, they should be ashamed and not, you know, people should be ashamed and agree with it. Uh, I was in there, I had to pay for parking. There was some reimbursement. You had to do a whole bunch of red tape and paperwork to get it. Um, but it still wasn't enough reimbursement for everything else you lost through the state, but, uh, they did try to do something, but it was just sad that while my family and me were at this testify and trial, we had to pay for parking in the parking garage. We had to pay for our lunches while we were sitting there in court because we couldn't leave. So we had to pay. But his family, not even his mom and dad, his other relatives, they flew him over, paid for their flights, paid for their hotel, gave him police escorts because they had to because they were going to get killed. Police escorts to the court on a bus. Uh, and they bought them lunch. All their meals, actually. They paid for all their meals while their family was were here. Hmm. But me, meanwhile, I'm flying home on my own dime to come testify for the attorney general's office. Seems a little bit backwards, doesn't it? Ah, this world. It's a great world. It's great to live in, you know, America where terrorists can get everything that they get and be protected by our 
by our rights. But I, you know, our rights protect us the same way. You know, guys fight for that, and that's you know why we have the great country we have. But at the same time, there has to be a point where people need to wake up. Sure. Was it hard for you to testify? No, not at all. What was what? I mean, were you just asked to? What was the testimony like? Were you just asked to give your version of the events? I mean. Yeah, like who I was before, who I, you know, what's going on, what I've been through, you know, what happened, where were you that day, what did you see, you know, um, how many surgery surgeries you've been in, you know, oh the doctor, you have this in your heart, yes, you have this, yep, you did that, yep. I you mean, know, it was, you, you, but you're sitting in the courtroom, staring at this kid, and that's what he is. He's a kid, you know. He's not even yeah, old enough to rent a car. Look. He wouldn't even look at me. He wouldn't even look at me. Did you want to tell him, look at me, man? Like, you know. <laughs> I wanted to grab him by his throat and rip his jugular out of his throat, to be honest with you, when he walked by me. But there was a, there was a, you know, an agent between me and him when he walked by the test, the stand I was testifying on. He came out next to it and walked kind of across. I want, I was in my wheelchair because I couldn't weight bear. I was still in the weight bearing on my leg, um, my left one. So, yeah, I wanted to grab him. I just, I just, I just. I just want you have a roadhouse where the guy rips the guy's yep. jugular right out of his neck. <laughs> yeah. That's all I wanted. That's all I envisioned. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to just, let's put it to rest right now. Let me just grab him by his throat. Cause my hands were so strong from pushing on crutches and wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I could do it. I'm like, I bet, I bet you give me a chance. I bet you I could grab him by his throat and rip it out. I guarantee. <laughs> I just wonder if I could do it. You know, I really did. I just, that's on dead honest. I was, most of the day of testifying, that was all that was going through my man. My mind is, if I had the chance, I'm gonna try. Did did, did you ever That's say all that? Going through my mind. Did you ever vocalize that? No, no. This is my te- no. This is the first time I ever said that. Oh, okay. Just to myself, I was saying it. I wasn't saying it out loud to anybody. Like I was thinking that in my head the whole day. To be honest with you, I still think of that. that I still think of it this to this day that I'd love to be able to do that. So when listen, and by the way, I, I no problem with you saying it. I mean, I understand the emotion. I. I I, I, I empathize. I don't sympathize, but I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, but with the ending of this thing and he gets the death penalty, are you satisfied with that? Would he get the death penalty, though? Will he ever? Well, okay. When's uh, the last time? I mean, you know, like... Different set of questions. My son, yeah, my son cries every once in a while. At least a couple times a year, but why is he still alive? I just want him dead. I just want him dead. Like, why is he still alive? Like, my son just wants him gone off this earth for what he did to me well, that's and how he rip. affected mine and my son's life. Yeah, that's how you get rid so, That's got to rip your heart out. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Like, he just he's just crying, and I'm like, why are you crying, buddy? He's in the back seat, and it's like, because I just want him dead. I'm like, who do you want dead? He's like, the bomber. I just want him fucking dead. And I'm like, holy shit, all right, buddy, I get it. You know, and it's at least, at least once, twice a year that he does it, you know? Or, it's or, just like, why is he still alive? Are, are so, you more – well, let me ask you real quick. Are you more bothered by, you know, the fact that you know, we're even debating this, that, that he's still alive, or are you more bothered by what you're still going through with the whole thing? I mean, forever and a day I'll have to go through what I go through. I, you know, right. we have people that have – um, so a lot of marathon bombing survivors um, – is unfortunately I get it. There's different classes of survivors. Some are physical, some are more mental. And some of the people that have their mental disabilities from it now, 
I get it. I can't remember and recall seeing what they all saw. You know, uh, I couldn't even imagine what they saw. You know what I mean? Like I was looking at the sky and I was strapped into a headboard. You know what I mean? So I didn't get to see, and I don't remember seeing any of it, like the gruesomeness, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't want to have, I mean, I'm a different breed. Some people handle it different. I don't know. And maybe it would have affected me, but I didn't see it. Uh, so there's different levels of survivors and some of them say like that they're, they're worse than us. And it was actually said by, I guess a few and, you know, and, and I, I can't weigh that difference cause I don't live that. So I would never say who's worse than the other one, but I do know I wake up every day or when I sit on the toilet and I look down and my legs gone, <laughs> I'm reminded of it every day. So living with it every day, I think is, you know, help my mom put the closet doors back on you yesterday. Uh, you know, she was upset because I had a struggle getting up and off the ground with my leg and, uh, you know, that, that bothers me, but I, I think, I think him not being dead bothers me more, to be honest. I think us debating his, him being alive or not for what he did to that eight year old boy, six year old girl, you know, 21 year old exchange student, 23 year old, you know, the cop that he exit, they killed mm -hmm. the life that they've changed forever. I don't think he deserves to breathe the air. Just get, get rid of him and move on. I mean, when, when a parasite still lives, it's, it's still there in the back of your head, you know, and he's a parasite and we're paying for him. We're, you know, housing him or feeding him. You know, I think, I think that bothers me more that he's breathing and the little boy's not, you know, no, listen, that just that's really fair. bugs me. I, I can see you know? the I can see the logic behind the sentiment. You know, I, I, I uh, if I was in your position, I'd I, probably be thinking the same thing. But I do love the fact that I know he's not happy living where he's living. You know, that's more mental. That's a mental torture. You know what I mean? Which is, which is, which is great. I think, but you know what? I, I think at some point, okay, he's, we've tortured him enough. Now he's probably just adapted to it. So now kill him. You know what I mean? Like at yeah. first, that's a heavy weight to stare at a wall for five years, for six years. You know what I mean? But at some point, you become adaptive to that life. And, uh, you know, I think that at that point, once you become adapted to it and you're used to it and you're just functioning fine, then that's when we should kill you. <sighs> yeah. That's a lot of people disagree with me. No, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree. I'm processing the emotions. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's, no. it, I, it, so I'm not saying you, just some other people out there in the world. I mean, old cliche, right? Beauty of this country is we can all agree to disagree on uh, on, on matters like this. But you know, again, for can for, we though? for you, it's personal. <laughs> like I could sit as a spectator and agree to disagree, but for you, it's personal, yeah. and and that's a different set of circumstances. You know, it's the same thing we talk about in combat. You know, it's easy for for people to sit on the sidelines, and I don't say that in a disrespectful way, but people who aren't in combat to make judgments and pass on what goes on, the people who do things and this, that, and the other. But until you've been inside that lion's den and have lived that life, uh, it's, it's a different perspective, a different understanding of what goes on. And you have a much different understanding of all these events um, and all the survivors of the Boston Marathon bombing do than any of us. You know, I mean, that, that's, I, I think we need to all understand and respect those perspectives are different and they're going to be different. 
hundred percent. No, I, I agree. It's just it's Bernie Bernie Sanders was specifically asked people like so felons and people like terrorists. Yeah, I saw the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. bomber should be able to vote. I mean, and he says yes, and he and he feels that way, and he stood by that. He could have retracted at any time. Being a politician, nobody knows better how to speak than Bernie Sanders. He's been doing it long enough. It's all he's done his whole life. He's been a politician, and politicians blow smoke up your ass. He at any time could have retracted and said, you know what, I think felons should, but maybe not the terrorists like the Boston Marathon bomber. Maybe he shouldn't be able to vote. You know what I mean? Like, he could have corrected it and still agreed with his own beliefs, you know? Uh and I think, you know, a felon who steals a certain amount of money worth of stuff when he's 18 and then goes on to live a successful life, made a mistake, you know what I mean? He should be able to vote when he's paying taxes and living the right way. But a guy who's a multi-offender, murderer, you know, or a terrorist, I don't think he should ever be able to vote. And if, and, and I feel like people like Bernie and people that agree with him, I, I, I really believe that they should just take them all, all the criminals and felons and murderers and terrorists, and go live on an island with them. You pay for them. Cause that's what he wants to do. Pay for everybody. You pay for each other and you live with each other. And those are the same people trying to take our second amendment away. Right? So no guns. You guys get to go live with the murderers on an Island. Good luck to you. And let them vote on who runs your Island and see how you like it. You know, but it's also a small portion of people that won't make a difference in the voting polls. Anyways, it's like not something to worry about, mm-hmm. but I just people like that. I can agree to disagree with them. Yeah. You know, no. you, you mentioned uh, about the nurse who saved your life, uh, your son, uh, the aftermath, you know, your parents and, and uh, what they have to deal with with your situation. Um, what about any of this would you do differently or change? Uh Hmm. I wish there was more video and photos of my initial, my whole, I, I, I just wish it was more documented. My, my hospital stay video and photo wise. Why? Um, because it's so easy to forget what this guy did to us and not having those reminders. Um, but also my biggest reason for that is to see where I came from. Mm-hmm. I do have pictures. I do have the, I have a picture of me laying on the operating table that day. The doctor had to take it for the, uh, for the S for the FBI for, for Homeland security. He had to take it to show that I came in missing my leg. It wasn't something that I was amputated at the hospital and it was for, for record. He had to take this picture in for evidence. Um, and I have it and it reminds me how far I've came and how lucky I am you know, and how strong the human body is and spirit. Like, I mean, that, I mean, as far as that, I mean, what else can I change? You know, I can't change that it happened. You know what I mean? It happened. Um, I mean, is there any, any, any perspective, any feeling or emotion that you sort of had that you thought at the time was, you know, the right one or a reaction and you look back on it and, Wished anything had, had transpired differently? Nothing that I can recall. I'm sure there are a few things I'd like to take back that I said. Uh, but that's what everybody, people get emotional. And I mean, even with like presidents, 
or politicians to, or anybody in life. Everybody gets emotional, says things they regret, regret things that they did. At the time you think it's right, then you look ahead 10 years later, you're like, oh, wow, that, that was really wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything can be interpreted too, you know? And I, and I hate that more than anything. I, I let a Boston Globe writer in my hospital room pretty much the whole time I was in Mass General. And uh, she wrote a big article in the Boston Globe, I think it was six pages, um, about my recovery in the hospital. And it was pretty open. It was pretty raw. There was no hidden things. They were in my house. They were living in my house. They were living in my hotel, my hospital room, uh, photographer and a writer. I mean, there was all raw footage, words being said, family emotions being shared, things being said to each other, uh, fights between me and my ex-wife, arguments, disagreements. Um, and somebody asked me during a, a, the book conference in Boston and we got interviewed and they said, did you read the Boston Globe article? And how, how did you feel about the Boston Globe article that was written about you? And what would you say to anybody who writ, wrote it on how they interpreted it or how they took it? Or was there anything you'd want to explain more about? Like explain, like, um, Clarify, you and know, I, and, shed more light on yeah, it. Yeah, anything you'd like to clarify or anything like, because maybe somebody interpreted it different. And I said, A, I never read it. Why not? Because I lived it. Okay, I don't need to read it. He goes, yeah, but what if she said something? And, you know, but I said, what am I going to do? Call everybody who read the Boston Globe and explain to them that that lady was wrong? I said, it is what it is. It's out there. I said, and they can interpret it any way they want to interpret it. It's not going to hurt my feelings. You know, I mm-hmm. said, you, you can't, you can't have everybody. And unfortunately not everybody thinks and processes things the same way. Uh, so as far as I can recall, there's nothing that I've re- I'm sure there was, but nothing offhand that I could say right now that I sure. regret doing or saying, you know, you do motivational speaking. Uh, now, what do you want people to take from your story? Support, support each other. Cause the biggest thing in my life, that's got me to where I am is support. And I mean, I support children with missing limbs and limb differences through camp, no limits. Um, I support veteran organizations because it's what got me and my family to where we are is support, support from complete strangers. The person working next to you, you never know what they're going through at home. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it's an easy thing to do is support each other and be nice to one another, you know, instead of being an asshole, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just, that's easy, simple things in life that you can do. Hold the door that nobody does for each other anymore. I'm an amputee. I'm in a wheelchair. People don't even hold the door for me. It's embarrassing. You know, I mean, it's like, and like they do it in front of their kids. And I'm like, that's ah, a great way to show your kids, you know, how to be kind. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the guy yeah. lets the door shut on a candy. He looks right at me, blatantly knows I'm in a wheelchair, could use the door to be held and just lets it shut. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? or I'm on crutches with no leg on, you know, and it's just about being kind to one another. And I don't need anybody to open the door, but it's just like a polite thing to do. I do it. I, people are like, no, I got it. I'm like, no, go ahead. And I'm holding the door with no leg or I'm on crutches, opening the door for people. You know, it's just common courtesy. I mean, my story, take everything from my story basically is life's, you know, life's a choice. It's a decision. You either decide to be unhappy or you choose to be happy. It's, it's, it's one, it, 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 and it, it's like, oh, it's not that easy. 
No, it really kind of is. Like it really is. It's a de- like it's a decision. I feel. I really strongly feel it's a decision to get up and get going. And I mean, is it easy? No, but that's nothing's easy, you know. It, but I think I really just think it's life is a choice. You either choose to be happy and you choose to accomplish it, or you choose not to. Um, and then, like I said, this you know the, the biggest thing after that would be, like I said, the support just truly supporting each other and being kind to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes a long way. Absolutely. I mean, beautiful words and, you know, a sentiment I think that goes a long, long way. And to that end, certainly, you know, uh, wish you nothing but continued success, continued health and, uh, you know, many more pain-free days if there are, uh, if those are in your future to say the least. But uh, Mark, I thank you so much for sharing your story with our, with our listeners. Again, I know it's, uh, for our audience, it's not typical of what we do here, but I, we certainly think this story has a ton of value. And, and Mark, uh, you know, your, your honesty and your candor uh, are, are certainly welcome in this forum. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best going forward. And certainly, uh, Mark Fucarillo, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Hey, I appreciate it. And I appreciate and thank all our veterans and all our servicemen and women that uh, give us the opportunity to be as free as we are. Uh, and I was grateful to meet so many veterans that actually saved my life, you know, from Semper Fi Fund, the veterans that came up beside our hospital beds and answered questions for us and our family and told us everything was going to be okay. And they've stuck beside us for the last almost seven years now. And I just appreciate the service men and women of our country more than anything. Mark, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Mark. I appreciate you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Guys, as we get older, we all start to notice minor changes in sexual performance. It happens, but you can stop Mother Nature. Whether you're just starting to develop erectile dysfunction symptoms or are suffering from chronic ED, call Metro Men's Health. Skip the pills and injections. They're only temporary and lose effectiveness over time. Metro Men's Health treats the root cause of ED, lack of blood flow, so it works long term. Metro Men's Health uses the most advanced and clinically proven wave therapy on the market to actually repair aging blood vessels and restore them to a younger you. Get your spontaneity and your confidence back with safe, effective treatment from Metro Men's Health. Visit MetroMensHealth.com or call 833-687-0700. Don't let ED get worse. Call Metro Men's Health today, 833-687-0700, 833 687 Zero seven zero zero.